a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. Today, we're going to be looking at the final two chapters in the wonderful book of Joshua. Chapters 23 and chapter 24 of Joshua. This would be Joshua's farewell address to the Israelites. We find here that Joshua is an old man now, and he's near the end of his life. Chapter 24, verse 29 tells us he was 110 years old when he died. In this speech, Joshua reminded them of all that God had done for them. And Joshua tried to help them get a handle on seeing things from the right perspective. He wants them to recognize the dangers that they're going to face, and he wants them to understand the importance of getting it right. So let's begin here at verse 1 of chapter 23. And remember, as we read, this is God's word. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Now immediately you see what Joshua's doing here, don't you? He's giving all the glory to God. You saw that in verse 3? Look at verse 3 one more time. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done. Who? The Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Makes it very clear, doesn't he? We can see that Joshua had his head on straight. (laughs) There'll always be a temptation for some people to say, Whoa, look what Joshua has done. Or in our day, it might be, look what our pastor has done, or look what our worship leader has done. You fill in the blank with the name of your favorite spiritual leader, maybe. But if we say, look what God's man has done, instead of look what God has done through the man, we're really getting it wrong. It's not the man doing it, it's God doing it through the man. The man's cooperating with God, of course. But there's a danger of us or even men themselves saying, look what I've done, (laughs) taking glory that belongs to God. Joshua wasn't that foolish. He says, it's the Lord, the Lord your God, who's fought for you. Verse 4, behold, I've allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Even though Joshua's personal work on this earth was nearly done, he realizes he's getting close to the end of his life, 
the work's not over. The job's not finished. There's still work to be done. But Joshua reaffirms God's promise. God will push them back. You shall possess the land. God's made that promise. Verse 6, Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Do those words sound familiar? He's speaking this near the end of his life. It, it sounds like the same note on which he started, doesn't it? You remember verse 6 of chapter 1? When, when God first tells Joshua, it's time for you to lead, Moses is dead. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, look at this. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. So he's just underlining it here at the end of his life. Verse 7, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. In other words, this is a way of saying, people, be holy. Stay away from all this paganism. God has made you holy. You're surrounded by paganism, but you're not to be like them. You're not to embrace those gods. Verse 8, but you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you've done to this day. The word cling here is an interesting Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is dabak, and it means to really stick closely to, to, to be joined together with. It's the same word we find in Genesis 2. You're familiar with this verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Same word we find in Deuteronomy chapter 11. He says, For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and here it is, holding fast or clinging to him. And in Deuteronomy 13, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him. And here it is, hold fast, cling to him. So it's also used a few verses on down here in Joshua 23, down in verse 12. Look at this. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. So now he's talking about clinging to the wrong thing. But he, the, the word means to really hang on to, really stick close to. You ever seen a little baby monkey clinging to its mother? It's a beautiful picture. And it gives us a Good idea of what it means to cling to. <laughs> By the way, in conjunction with that Genesis 2.24 passage I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, a husband should cling to or hold fast to his wife. I heard a teacher say one time, the picture there is like a husband and a wife clinging to each other like two plies of a piece of plywood. <laughs> and he talked about how destructive it would try to be if you tried to rip that apart. Um, <laughs> Good picture of what marriage is supposed to be. I don't know how many wives would get all excited to hear her husband say, you're like a piece of plywood to me. <laughs> but it's a good picture, isn't it, of what God wants marriage to be. It's a good picture of what God wants our relationship with him to be, too. We need to be like that with God. We need to cling to him. Now, as we read more in the Bible, we learn the wonderful news that as we cling to him, 
we discover that it's really God clinging to us. Isn't this amazing? Uh, you know what Jesus said? John recorded it in his gospel in chapter 10. Jesus said, my father, who's given them to me, is greater than all. And listen, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The father clings to us. The father holds us. That's the picture there. So as we obey God's command to cling to him, he's reminding us that the truth is he's the one clinging to us. He keeps us. He holds us. Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, God keeps us. Yes, we cling to him, but the good news is he's clinging to us. Verse 9 in Joshua 23, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. They knew, of course, already that these were great and strong people. They knew that from the very beginning when those 12 spies went out to look out the land. Whoa, look at these people. They're great and strong. <laughs> and they were so intimidated, they wound up wandering in the wilderness all those 40 years. And as for you, no man's been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. In a sense, you could say, I think, if you think about it, that Joshua 23, 11 is the most important verse in the Bible, along with other verses just like it. But it certainly has the most important commandment in the Bible, doesn't it? We can't argue with that. Look at Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, but it's very similar to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The most important command is to love God with everything we've got. Now, I realize somebody might say here, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought the most important thing was to trust God, to trust Jesus. Isn't trusting him more important than loving him? And I would just say, I don't think you can separate those two, can you? How can you separate trusting God from loving God? I mean, I realize there may be some differences in their definitions, but they, but they certainly go together, don't they? Can you imagine somebody saying, well, I'm trusting Jesus. I just don't love him. I mean, that's nonsense, isn't it? Or the other way around. I love Jesus. I just don't trust him. What? Uh, and you realize that the person who says something like this doesn't really know what he's talking about. He either doesn't really trust or love Jesus at all, or is confused about the meaning of the words. Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians 13 that if we don't have love, all the other good things we might do are in vain. You remember this? 1 Corinthians 13, 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So it, it, it really is all about love. When we understand what love means, we'll understand that love and faith go together and you can't separate them. You remember how the Lord rebuked the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? You remember Jesus gave John 
uh, seven brief letters to these churches there in Asia. He said, I know you, this is the letter to the Ephesians. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at the first. You've abandoned the love. Notice verse 11 again. Be very careful. Here, here's what happens, guys. We, we have to be careful too. God is not apprehended with our physical senses, right? You don't see him with your physical eyes. We don't hear him with our physical ears. We don't touch him with our hands. God is spirit. And the Lord knows that there will always be an ever-present temptation to love things and to love people that we can see and hear and touch. It is a huge and ongoing and deadly temptation. We have to be very careful. We have to continually be alert. We have to continually examine ourselves. What am I loving? Who am I loving? Where am I spending my time, my energy, my money, my resources God allows me to be a steward of? That'll help me learn what I'm loving or who I'm loving. Verse 12, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. He's warning them if they if they don't keep themselves separated from these pagans, they will have they will find themselves falling into a trap or a snare. You know how a trap or a snare works? Of course you do. You, they don't work if you see them coming, right? They work by enticement. It looks good. There's something tempting about a trap or a snare. There's something there that's desirable. So there might be a temptation for Israel, for example, to think that maybe it'd be kind of cool to have some close relationships with these pagan people. Maybe their women look good to the Israelite men, or maybe the men seem good to the Israelite women. Or maybe it seemed good to them, to some of them, to form alliances with them against what they perceived to be bigger enemies. Maybe there were things about their gods that seemed pretty enticing. It happens to a lot of kids when they go off to college. They discover there are other kinds of gods out there that maybe they kind of think, I might like that god better because they're being very selfish. Maybe those gods that they looked at there that the other people had, maybe they didn't seem quite as demanding in some ways as Jehovah. Maybe they would let you indulge in your favorite sin and, and approve of it. You know, not like that God, huh? But once we've walked into the trap, once we've walked into the snare, then what? Well, here he says, it's, it'll be like a whip on your sides. It'll be like thorns in your eyes. That's pretty unpleasant, huh? Until you what? Until you perish. It will lead to your death, at least to destruction. There's a powerful picture of this very kind of thing in Proverbs. Look at this. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. 
He who commits adultery like sense, he who does it destroys himself. God paints another powerful picture, the same kind of thing in the next chapter. Let's look at this. And I have seen among the simple and I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wildly of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. Today I paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's take our fill of love till morning. Let's delight ourselves with love, for my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he'll come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces his liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, there it is. He does not know that it will cost him his life. God sets up a picture here in Proverbs of what most men in the flesh would probably consider some kind of fantasy come true, right? It's kind of stuff that erotic and pornographic books and movies are made of, except those things usually leave out that last couple of verses there that we looked at. You you remember it? Verse 22, all at once he follows her, look, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces his liver, or as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. By the way, it's not just a problem with men. I know God seems to be directing this to men, but there's a similar problem that women are having to deal with. I saw an Internet article the other day that said that the number one fastest growing pornography addicted group in the United States is women. Many of these are women who say they're followers of Jesus, but they're enticed. They're interested. They're intrigued by pornographic stuff. And, and the pornography is crippling, crippling our families. And we need to be praying, God, please help us to see what this is doing to us and turn back to you, repent of these sins and follow you because there are people being addicted to this stuff all over the country, all in our churches. And we need to be praying God would help us to learn that we need to desire him more than we desire to please the flesh. So important. Satan's trapping a lot of people that way. Back to Joshua, verse 14. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, he's about to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he's given to you. So he's warning them very, very severely. God blesses. He's serious about his promises. He keeps his promises. But he also warns us that the consequences of sin are very real. He's very serious about that. 
it does lead to destruction. It does lead to death. It does lead to many, many pains that we didn't think would happen in advance often. We just don't want to think about it. Israel could not escape the consequences of sin, though, and neither can we. So God's warned them. He warns us the same consequences. Sin always brings a horrible consequence, a horrible outcome. In chapter 24, Joshua reviews the way God brought them out of obscurity and paganism. Verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and some of the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. By the way, uh, God doesn't record an incident in the scriptures where he used hornets to drive people out. There is a prophecy in Deuteronomy to that effect. Look at this verse. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. And since the actual event of him sending the hornets is not really recorded, some scholars believe it may be metaphorical. And I guess that's possible. I don't, I don't have a problem accepting that it might be metaphorical. But I also don't have a problem that God could have used literal hornets to drive them out. There have been incidents I have read where hornets swarmed in such large numbers that people have been driven from their homes and driven from their towns. So maybe he used real hornets. In any case, verse 13 says, I gave you the land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. He's reminding them here that God himself had prepared this land for them. He had arranged for the cities to be built, for the orchards and vineyards to be growing, and he intended to give it to Israel. We have an enormous problem here if we don't recognize what God's done for us in the past and for our forefathers before us. We enjoy so many blessings, if you just stop and think about it for a few minutes, because of the sacrifices of others in the past, in our past. They built cities. We didn't build them, they did. Vineyards and olive orchards that we didn't plant. 
lot of blessings that we enjoy that we need to be thankful to the Lord for and for using people in our past to build so that we can enjoy these things. That's what he did for Israel. Verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Look at this next phrase. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river. When, when they were beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He's reminding them that just because their ancestors did some things and some things that were good and they have some blessings because of their ancestors, it doesn't mean that everything they did was right or everything they did was good. We need to be careful that we don't just embrace everything that our grandparents or great-grandparents or whoever may have left for us or the example they may have set for us. Sometimes they weren't doing the right thing. One of the things that comes to my mind is Vicki, my wife, and I both had grandparents at one time who were members of the Masonic Lodge. Now, we love them dearly, and we realize they did it out of ignorance. They just didn't know. But there's really no excuse for us not to put away this false god of the Masonic Lodge. There are people today who embrace the Masonic Lodge, but they don't seem to want to study the details to find out what's wrong with it and how it's a false religion. Some people really get angry when you talk about that, even in our day. Some people's parents were Christians in name only. They felt the genuine passion for Christ. If you really got excited about God, somehow you're, you're, you're unbalanced. Have you, have you known anybody like that? If you really get serious about the Lord, you've gone off the deep end, you know, even though they say they're following Christ. Other people had parents whose gods were the gods of materialism or or maybe the careers that they were had, or maybe their education, or maybe certain people in the family, or whether you know, they had other wrong gods. And maybe some of them tried their best to instill that in us. They wanted us to worship the same gods they worshiped. But the true God says, put away the gods that your fathers served. If they weren't really serving me, put them away. <laughs> That's what the Israelites had to do. Verse 15, and if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or maybe the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Yahweh. Last part of this verse may be the most famous words in Joshua. Some of you have a plaque like that in your home. Great, great verse, isn't it? First part of that verse may seem a little strange. Why would Joshua use these words? I mean, who of the Israelites would say it's evil to serve the Lord? But once again, I'd say the operative word here is serve. Everybody's going to serve something. Everybody's going to serve someone. And it's okay for some people to say, oh, I'm, I'm serving the Lord. They're giving lip service to the Lord and maybe even going to church. But just don't get too serious about serving the Lord. <laughs> Have you known parents that want their children to, quote, trust Jesus, but then if their kids really get excited about Jesus, start talking about going to the mission field or some kind of, some kind of full-time Christian service, the parents panic. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't go overboard here. <laughs> That's awful. I shouldn't be laughing because it's a horrible thing, but it, you get my point. There are many people who just seem to have this attitude that, okay, we want to do enough to just keep the Lord happy if we can by doing enough of what in our minds ought to be enough to make him happy. 
but in their hearts, with their time and their energy and their money, they're serving other gods. Of course, the people give a good response. Verse 16, the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So they're saying, we're with you, Joshua. <laughs> we remember what God's done. Of course we do. We've heard all the stories from our parents. We've seen it a lot ourselves. We're going to serve him. Why on earth would we serve any of the gods? And it's reminding us here, I think, that, again, it's, it's easy for us to say the right words. And you know what? Sometimes churches are satisfied with that. Uh, we'll, we'll try to get people to say the right words. You want God to bless you? You want to have peace? You want to have joy? You want to have love? You want to have great fellowship? You want to have meaning and purpose in life? Won't be able to play on the church softball team? <laughs> Want to go to heaven when you die? Want to be part of God's family? Well, of course I do. Would we, wouldn't we all say yes to that? And then we'll say, well, good. Just pray this prayer and you got it. And we may be guilty sometimes of not giving people an opportunity to really understand what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a Christian. We imply that it's just saying some words. And so, and so here in this passage, Joshua answers in a strange way. Look at this, verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Whoa, what? What did you say, Joshua? God won't forgive our sins? What, what's, what, what does Joshua mean by that? I think Joshua may be doing here what Jesus did in Luke chapter 14. Look at this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. And when we get too quick to say, oh, yeah, 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 sure, count me in. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Yep, yep. God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're responding too quickly here. You need to count the cost. Have you counted the cost? Have you thought about the consequences of following me? Jesus didn't say, if you want to be my disciple, uh, come on, it'll be a lot of fun. He said, come on, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Not going to be easy. And sure, God forgives sin when his people are truly repentant. Maybe he meant what we might have translated as he's not going to overlook your transgressions. He's not going to overlook your sins. God's going to demand real repentance. He won't forgive you just because you're Israelites. <laughs> so you got to think about his holiness. You got to think about his demand for exclusive commitment. Don't say things you haven't thought through. Don't make commitments you haven't counted the cost for. I think that's the message behind these words. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. There'll be blessings for obedience. You can count on it. God keeps his promises and there will be horrible consequences for disobedience. You can count on it. God keeps his promises both ways. Verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. 
Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you lest you deal falsely with your God. So he said, I'm going to set up a tangible marker here, this standing stone. And, and that when you see that standing stone, it will remind you of this commitment you've made. Because standing stone was here when we made this commitment. Uh, Ray Vanderlaan has a wonderful video on the subject of standing stones. If you haven't seen it, you ought to check that out. There are other examples of standing stones in the Bible. For example, back in Joshua chapter 4, uh, when they crossed the Jordan River, they went into the promised land. He commanded them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, out of the midst of the Jordan River, where God had stopped it from flowing, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. God is into that kind of memorial that will remind us of his truth and his deeds and what he's done in our lives. It's good to have those kind of memorials, standing stones. Verse 21, he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. It's a memorial. You remember when Jacob had his dream of the ladder with the angels? After that dream, verse 18 says, So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Loose at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we have an account of the Israelites defeating the Philistines after Samuel has offered a sacrifice, and Samuel puts up a standing stone in memorial, memorial stone again. He named it Ebenezer, a place name there uh, where, where this all happened. And, and we pronounce it Ebenezer sometimes. And you may remember the word from the song, And come thou fount of every blessing. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. I'm setting up my standing stone, a memorial stone, to remind myself of what God did here. When we get to the New Testament, we find some scriptures and truth that carries this picture even further. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter. You yourselves like living stones 
We are living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, of course, we're part of a spiritual house. That's the point of this. We're stones, part of his house. But we're like memorial stones as well to remind each other of what God has done in our lives. He goes on to say, you're a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're reminding each other of what God's done in our past. We're like standing stones too. We're like memorials, what God's done. Keep your conduct of the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Back to Joshua, verse 28. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. And so ends the book of Joshua. Very powerful message about the faithfulness of God to keep his promises and God commanding us, don't forget what I've done. Keep your focus on me. Don't serve other gods. And that reminder is as important for us today as it was for them then. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Joshua. Thank you for Joshua's life. Thank you for raising him up to to walk in the incredible, impossible sandals of Moses after Moses died, to lead the people of Israel into the promised land across the Jordan River, and to give him incredible experiences of victory and incredible experiences of keeping his focus on you and watching you carry out your promises. Lord, we know that after Joshua died and after those elders died, the people for the most part forgot you. We know every generation has to make its decision about what they're they're going to do with you. And so, Lord, I pray that we will be found faithful. I pray that we will do all that we can to help our kids stay faithful, our grandkids to stay faithful, to know what you've done. Help us, Lord, to think through how you might want us to set up some standing stones as memorials to remind our kids, our grandkids, the next generations, what you have done that you might get a lot of glory and that they may be a little less tempted to follow after gods that bring only disaster and pain and hurt and destruction. Lord, help our kids and grandkids, help all of us to realize that there are things out there in the world that look so attractive, but that are traps, that are snares, and that lead to pain and death. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus on you knowing that when we do, we don't have regrets. We look back with great joy at the way you brought us through. So we give you praise for what you have done and what you're going to do. And we ask that you help us set an example, help us to keep our focus on you 
and bring you lots of glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.